Hi there, I'm Jesse. Um, I'm reading Acts 1, 1 through 11, and my husband says, go slow. In the first book, O Theophilus, I have dealt with all that Jesus began to do and teach until the day when he was taken up after he had given commands through the Holy Spirit to the apostles whom he had chosen. He presented himself alive to them after his suffering by many proofs, appearing to them during 40 days and speaking about the kingdom of God. And while staying with them, he ordered them not to depart from Jerusalem, but to wait for the promise of the Father, which he said, You heard from me, for John baptized with water, but you will be baptized with the Holy Spirit not many days from now. So when they had come together, they asked him, Lord, will you at this time restore the kingdom to Israel? He said to them, It is not for you to know times or seasons that the Father has fixed by his own authority. But you will receive power when the Holy Spirit has come upon you, and you will be my witnesses in Jerusalem and all Judea and Samaria and to the end of the earth. And when he had said these things, as they were looking on, he was lifted up, and a cloud took him out of their sight. And while they were gazing into heaven as he went, behold, two men stood by them in white robes. And he said, Men of Galilee, why do you stand looking into heaven? This Jesus, who was taken up from you into heaven, will come in the same way as you saw him go into heaven." Thank you, Jesse. I thought your pace was perfect. Good morning, everybody. I start on a bit of a somber note as I look back on an event that took place in 1987. It was called the Black Dragon Fire that took place in China. It was the deadliest forest fire that they've seen in at least 300 years. It was also even spreading into the Soviet Union. The burning lasted almost a month, and when it was finally stopped, it had destroyed 18 million acres of forest, including one-sixth of China's entire timber reserves. 266 people were injured, 211 died, 50,000 people were left homeless. It's one of the largest wildfires ever to occur. The area surrounding a certain river in the region had been unusually hot and was experiencing a drought. Listen to this now, leading to an overabundance of parched vegetation. So these conditions were ideal for a large wildfire to occur. Later and widely believed Chinese reports state that the fire was started when an untrained 18-year-old worker accidentally ignited gas spilled from his brush cutter. You can't imagine that there would have been much gas spilled. It wouldn't take a whole lot. And yet it's still potentially ignited if the reports are true. The entire 18 million acres of forest set ablaze. The um, introduction or the part that of the text that Jesse read for us this morning comes from the book of Acts, as she said. And it is where we'll be spending our uh, foreseeable future as we pick a new book of the Bible to study together. And the reason why I want to be in Acts and why I believe the Lord has led us here is because it contains for us a historical view of a flame that was lit and the conditions were right for this flame to be lit and so that it would spread to all four corners of the world. A flame that started or took place in the first century AD that that can't be contained, it can't be extinguished no matter how hard they've tried over the centuries, it still cannot be put out. 
We can't compartmentalize this, this um, uh, blaze that has been named the church of Jesus Christ. No matter how much believers and unbelievers alike have tried to pigeonhole the, the movement of the church, the role of the church, what it's supposed to be in society, stay in your lane, do churchy things, we'll handle this stuff over here. You can't compartmentalize the church. You can't extinguish the power that Jesus had, had, had uh, filled the church with through the Holy Spirit that set the whole thing on fire. This is a Holy Spirit flame. It's an eternal flame. It's an continuous burn that can't be put out. And we get to go back and look at where it kind of all began and how it all unfolded, how the story developed. Not because we expect it to start again the same way as it did then. Oftentimes when I hear leaders or pastors or even Christians talk about getting into acts, there's so much of this longing for, I wish we could just get back to doing what happened in acts as though we can somehow remanufacture the, the quote unquote magic that took place. But it was a beginning of something. It was the start of something. And, and no matter how much as, as human beings, we try to go back to the beginning of something, we can't recapture the same exact feelings, the same exact um, circumstances that surround it. Like we said in that story, the conditions were perfect for being lit and for the fire to just spread like crazy. But that doesn't mean that the Lord isn't still burning, isn't still fueling that fire and still sending it. It's just that it's not going to play out exactly like the account of Acts because something new was starting. And I believe that it's a timely study for us because we're in what might be a new era of ministry here at Faith, of, of, of challenging ourselves to be available to move as the Lord leads us. Not to say that we, we haven't been historically as a church, but in a new era and a new time and new circumstances and surroundings, what is the Lord doing differently in this season of our lives together? We've been talking so much about how do we go about spreading the gospel in the city that the Lord has planted us in and how does that spread from the city out to the uh, outer reaches, the outer areas, and even around the world. Personally, my prayer, my hope is that as we study this book together, that we as believers will begin to anticipate all over again what the Lord wants to and is capable of doing through the church. If you've come from a background like mine, you hear Acts and all you hear is Acts chapter two, the Holy Spirit came and they gave them tongues of fire and they started speaking in unknown language or known languages that they didn't know they could speak and all these kinds of things. And, and, and you want to resist in a sense that we always come back to that story just to justify that people want to be able to speak in tongues today. My background was not experiencing that, wasn't teaching that as a doctrine. And so when I see Acts, I have a tendency to limit the move of the spirit because I want to explain everything theologically or doctrinally. We'll get into some of that. I think it's important to take the time to do that. But I know coming from my experience and my background, what I need is I need the Lord to kind of blow my mind at the things he's capable of and willing to do as he sweeps through the church like a, like a roaring fire setting everything around it ablaze. So my hope and my prayer isn't to explain away everything in Acts to try to contain the fire, but to celebrate in the move that God had done. 
But again, I hold to the fact that we can't recreate the magic. We're not always looking to go back and say, how do we do this again? How do we have exactly what they had then in that era when God was clearly doing something in a new phase for a new reason and in a new way? It's critical for us to come back to a place of anticipation. It's also an opportunity, as, as it always is whenever we open the Word of God, for the lost to encounter the power of the resurrection of Jesus Christ. I saw a stat the other day that said that 48% of adults are saying that they're more open to spiritual conversations now than they were pre-COVID. 40, it's nearly half of the adults that you run into have a little bit more interest in talking about things of faith in spiritual matters than they were before. Something's changed in the culture in which we live. Is it getting more Christian? No. Should we expect it to? No. But it's becoming, perhaps, in this season, more open to that little tiny flame that you and I go around in light called the gospel of Jesus Christ. I say little and tiny because it's ours. It's a giant, massive forest fire when you see it across the landscape of the church in the world. So we come to this book looking to see what we can get out of it. We'll be in it for, you know, I don't know, 40 or so lessons, and we'll see how the calendar plays out. But we'll be reading these accounts that were given to us by Dr. Luke. You might remember that Luke's name is attached to one of the four gospel accounts that we have in the New Testament. So we have Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John. Now, Luke wasn't one of the apostles that was with Jesus at the time and everything. What, what Luke was was a companion of Paul's. And by um, occupation, uh, history tells us that he was a physician. He was a doctor. He was an educated man. And so it mattered to him to record the details accurately, not that those that wrote down were dealing with less. But there was a way in which he was going to go about it that I'm sure was true to his education and his profession. And it probably got him in places that others didn't get in terms of the message. So he's addressing his book to this man named Theophilus we know very little about. But perhaps he was a man of good standing and, and high reputation. He was a Roman, most likely. He either was a convert already and needed his faith strengthened, or he was a seeker, as we like to say, and he was looking for some of the facts and the details that, that Luke could send his way to kind of prove the case of everything that the apostles and the disciples have witnessed. So Luke's goal is, as he states right from the beginning, that I am writing to you to give an accurate account so that you would know that what we see and what we, pro- I mean, what we proclaim happened actually happened. It's a little bit of a misleading title that we have. If you're looking at your Bible right now, most likely on the top of the page, it says the Acts of the Apostles. And clearly the apostles are acting out the leading and the moving of the Holy Spirit in the church. But we have a tendency to think that they are the center or the stars of the story. But if we've been in our Bibles long enough, we know that Jesus is the center and the star of every story from cover to cover in the word of God. That as we, we see that Jesus isn't now moved on and it's the phase of the Holy Spirit, now that becomes the phase of the apostles, that Jesus is still the central figure in all that we're about to see and discover as we go through this book. I guess maybe a different title that we could give it, though not nearly as efficient, would be something like, you know, the acts of Jesus by the Holy Spirit through the witness of the apostles. You know, that would be quite a long title. But that's a little bit more accurate what we're going to see as we go through this book together. 
And what I'm praying for, Lord willing, is that our study is going to prove to us that we will become convinced that God's plan for reaching the world is still alive and is moving forward today. And you and I have a a key part to play in its movement. So let's look at this. We'll revisit the text that was read for us earlier and we'll break it down piece by piece and see if we can get some background, but also see if we can see what's coming uh, in the weeks ahead. The first thing I want us to understand is that God's plan is constantly unfolding, not in God's mind. He's got it figured out. We know this from our understanding, our theology of who God is, the nature and the character of God is it, it never, nothing ever occurs to God. He already knows. He's not adjusting his plan halfway through. Oh, the world reacted this way. I guess I'll send this instead. This has always been his plan. But as he's dealing with us limited people, he unfolds that plan piece by piece. So it it starts to become clearer to us as as it goes through. Oh, this is what he's been up to. And this is what I think we're seeing. Not what I think. What I know we're seeing with Acts is that God's plan is unfolding right before the eyes of the apostles. And Jesus is launching the church in this moment. So we go back to our text in Acts chapter 1. In verse 1, it says, In the first book, O Theophilus, I've dealt with all that Jesus began to do and teach. I love the language already from, from Luke in this. As he's, he's looking forward. He's saying, I, I wrote to you about what Jesus did. Now I'm going to write to you about other things and new things. He says, no, I'm writing to you about what Jesus started and he's not done doing yet. It's it's a language of expectancy. It's a language of 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 intrigue, saying, "Oh, the story's not over, and it's about to get even cooler." Verse two: Until the day when he was taken up, after he had given commands through the Holy Spirit to the apostles whom he had chosen, he presented himself alive to them after his suffering by many proofs, appearing to them during forty days and speaking about the kingdom of God. These forty days, I won't get into it a whole lot. But this is like a an in and out kind of um, appearance of Jesus. After he's raised from the dead, after some have seen him alive, he's he's coming and going. He's picking his spots, not again because it's just occurring to him, but he knows strategically right where he needs to be and when he needs to be there. So there might be two people walking along the road as recorded in the scripture saying, oh man, we thought this was it. We thought this was great. And then poof, there he is. He's like, I am real. I am alive. This is what it all means. Or that he shows up in other circumstances and he keeps coming in and out. He's appearing to them during 40 days and speaking about the kingdom of God, which is what we know ever since we saw the Sermon on the Mounts, what he talks about. He's a broken record about God's kingdom having come to earth already, but still having yet to be fully experienced as it plays out. So Luke is saying that Jesus began something by what he did and what he taught. He instructed with his words, but he modeled by his behavior. He says this was the launch to something. It was the beginning of something. And he did it with those concentrated few men most clearly so that they would have something to draw on so that the Holy Spirit would, as the scripture says, bring all things to remembrance when the time came based on all those experiences. The things that they were observing or things that were flying over their head would come back to them later and go, oh, that's what he meant. Oh, that's what he was trying to demonstrate. Oh, that's what he said. All of these things were happening in this next phase. 
When the, when Luke says that he showed them that Jesus was showing them many proofs, that might that might jump out at us a little bit. As you're reading your Bible, just kind of reread and try to figure out what are the things that are jumping out to me. If there are things that just have a natural question mark in your mind, it's probably there for a good reason. And when we think about the fact that Jesus quote unquote, had to prove to them over and over that it was really him, that it was risen. We might say, well, I thought that culture was a little bit more willing to believe this kind of stuff. They had gods on every corner. They were a little bit more superstitious. I thought they were ready for this kind of thing. But despite that surface level superstition, they primarily doubted that the dead could come back. They had a limit to their expectation of a power, the power of a God. And yet in these particular um, uh, days, they were they went from hearing his promises, the son of man will be killed and crucified, he will return, they heard all those things, and it still didn't sink in that that would be possible. And so he spoke to them over and over again, proving to them again, it's me, it's real, it really happened. It wasn't just the, the jealous Jewish leaders who would hear Jesus say something about destroy this temple and in three days I'll build it up. It wasn't just them that doubted, mocked, and laughed in the hearts of even the disciples and the apostles. They were like, what is he talking about? People don't come back. We know this because this is how they reacted. Again, back in Luke's account in his gospel in chapter 24, this is as Jesus reappears and he engages with two of the disciples and He hears what they're saying in verse 21. It says, but we had hoped that he was the one. We hoped he was the one to redeem Israel. We hoped he was the one as the Messiah to come back and establish our country, establish our nation, to get our enemies off our backs. We heard so much about this as we were studying John. Yes, and besides all this, it's it's now three days since it's happened. I mean, it's been so many days. It's been so long that we've completely given up hope that there was any truth to anything. Verse 25, so he said to them, them not knowing who's talking to them, he says, oh, foolish ones and slow of heart to believe all that the prophets have spoken. Was it not necessary that the Christ should suffer these things and enter into his glory? And beginning with Moses and all the prophets, he interpreted to them in all the scriptures, the things concerning himself, the things that were pointing to Jesus, the things that were speaking about him. He had to show them piece by piece, take that time and show them for them to say, didn't our hearts burn with us after he disappeared? Didn't he say something that just made it so clear? And they left with hope. I just want to do a quick drive by here on something that's really of critical importance. And so I'm praying and hoping that this will make its way into our conversation going forward. But there's a little phrase in the text that we said that, that, um, Uh, He had given commands through the Holy Spirit to the apostles whom he had chosen. It's very important for us to identify what an apostle was. An apostle was one who was specifically chosen by Jesus to be a leader. And there were 12. Even when one was gone, as Judas left and killed himself, that they replaced one to have that number. But an apostle was one who would, who, who would have seen the resurrected Christ, who was identified and handpicked by the Lord, but would have also seen the resurrected Christ. And if you're 
if you know your Bible, you'll be like, well, wait a second. Well, Paul wasn't around then. He wasn't walking and moving with the disciples at the time. How did he become an apostle? Paul's conversion is he was confronted by the appearance of the resurrected Christ who said, stop fighting against me. It's hard for you to keep persecuting and resisting me. So Paul refers to himself as one born out of season or one who was untimely born because I was still able, he says, to see the resurrected Christ. Therefore, I have been chosen as a qualified apostle. I say that as we get into the book of Acts because there's a lot out there in other church circles and environments who will identify and oftentimes self-identify as an apostle. I have seen the resurrected Christ. He's come to me in a vision and he's told me this. But this office, as we understand it, as it phases out in scripture, was a, 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 the door was open for a time. God appointed apostles. They had witnessed the resurrected Christ. And then as the apostles were martyred or died off, that that office had closed. And now the Lord, through the Holy Spirit, continued to fuel the church. There's no promise that apostles will keep coming. There's no biblical experience or Example of that, that they can just self-appoint themselves as apostles. And let's be honest. When someone walks around and saying, I'm an apostle, I saw Jesus last night. That message that's following is so self-serving and self, uh, so self-aggrandizing that, you know, it usually means we're going to raise some money. I got to build a bil- bigger building or buy a bigger house or I'm, the Lord wants me to have that plane. There's so many times that that word apostles thrown around and it's attached to, I saw a vision and no one else can corroborate it. No one else can say it was a movement of invitation or we all got around this and selected and all this kind of stuff. It's clear from scripture that God chose his apostles very specifically and timely and that that office had come and gone. So again, that's just a quick drive by on that. You may have questions on that, um, but hopefully we'll deal with that more as we go forward. Jesus is directing, he's launching the church, he's directing the church, even with some of the things he says and doesn't say. Let's get back to our text. In verse 4, and while staying with them, he ordered them, he's directing them now, stay put, don't leave Jerusalem, but wait for the promise of the Father. This is the one he said that, you know, you heard from me because John baptized with water. You have participated in an external baptism of repentance. It was a change of heart that you had. You've repented and you, you got into the waters physically to depict that. But a, a different baptism or an additional baptism in this time period is coming after that, which is the baptism of the Holy Spirit. And Jesus says it's happening not many days from now. So it's clear from our, our, what his language that it didn't happen automatically. Paul is going to clarify that later on. He's going to say to us in the scriptures, if you believe in Christ, you are in the spirit, that you've received the spirit. But at the time, again, this is an unfolding. So God is saying, I'm moving and I'm fulfilling a promise I made back in Ezekiel, I think 32 or 36. Someone can check that for me where, where, where God says that, uh, I will remove your heart of stone. I will give you a heart of flesh and my spirit will dwell in you. And that would have been really bizarre and radical language for the Jewish follower of God, for the religious Jew to be like, wait, God's spirit would dwell in me, not in that tent that I'm hardly let in. You know, that that your presence would be with me permanently. Now it's happening. Now he says, this is the moment. It's coming days from now. 
The spirit will indwell you. So don't leave Jerusalem. Stay put. I don't know what factors would have caused them to be itchy to go other than the just general continual persecution and the discomfort and the temperature that's being turned up on them. But he must have known that there was some reaction waiting to happen. He says, don't leave yet. Why? Because I have a thing I want to do in this city. Because I have a thing I want to do for these people. I want them to witness the arrival of the spirit because it's going to be so dramatic and life transforming that I want it to be in Jerusalem. So don't bring it somewhere else yet. This is Jesus laying out a specific plan, looking for greater impact. And yes, sometimes waiting paves the way for greater impact. Can I make the obvious application to anything you're going through in life right now? Doesn't it seem like the universal challenge we all have is waiting? The the universal thing, we always say, don't pray for patience because then you're going to get heaps of patience testing things coming your way and stuff. We all struggle with this. Why not yet? Why won't you just give me my yes now, Lord? Why do I have to wait for an answer? Is it possible that just as Jesus is saying to the apostles here, you need to stay put because I'm going to do something bigger than you could imagine. That sometimes the waiting is what paves the way for the for the bigger impact. This is what he promises to them at the beginning of verse eight. He says, you will receive power. Now, (laughs) humanly speaking, we could just stop there and be like, yes, finally, they were in the same boat. Their question coming up in a minute was, does that mean we're getting the kingdom? Does that mean we're getting our power now? Jesus says, you will receive power when the Holy Spirit has come upon you. This power will be different. It will be better than anything you can imagine. You think you're asking for something, but it's going to be in a different form and for a different purpose, but it's going to be far better and more powerful than you can even imagine. So whether or not, you know, they were hung up with like you and I are, as we evaluate Christianity or our walk with God, is this going to bring me some happiness? Is this a fulfilling thing? If I sign up for this Jesus thing, is this going to be rewarding? I mean, I, I can't tell from looking at God's people is this is all it's cracked up to be. And it's kind of like we shop Christianity like it is buying a car, looking for a new computer. Tell me the features. What do I get out of this when I, when I sign up? It's the same thing that's kind of hidden in that question of like, are we getting the kingdom? Are we getting the power? We want to know what's in it for us. The most important question to ask, and this is so much about the the resurrection, the proof of Jesus' resurrection, his ascension into glory, which we'll talk about here in a minute. The most important question that comes as we look at this text is that we need to ask of Christianity, not whether or not it's fulfilling or is it relevant, not first. The first question we need to ask is, is it true? Did this really happen? Because if this really happened, which according to all historical criteria, it did, more historical criteria is satisfied in this account than there isn't so many other things that we're supposed to believe in in history. That if it really happened, and this is really true, then the question of whether or not this is fulfilling or relevant answers itself. You mean that a savior really did lay his life down for me? That he really did pay for my sins? That he really did prove that it was an effective saving because he defeated death and came from the grave? That he really did ascend to the right hand of his father to take his seat of authority? 
if Christianity is true, then all of the fulfillment and relevance and things comes from that. That needs to be our most important question. God's plan is always unfolding as we see playing here, playing out here. But God's plan is always under his control. And this is what Jesus wants to remind the, the disciples, the apostles about here in their questioning. So he's going to refocus them when they ask in verse 6. When they came together, they asked him, Lord, will you at this time, again, like we've said, restore the kingdom to Israel? It's not a crazy question. I know it would be easy for me right now to pick on them and say, haven't they listened to what he said and all this kind of stuff. But if they're interpreting their prophecy with the information they've been given, which again was a mystery that hadn't been fully revealed yet, they would be led to believe as you and I would have been that when God said, I am bringing the spirit that they would have thought, well, maybe this means the nation is restored too, that the kingdom is restored, that, that passage of, of scripture I, I said in Ezekiel 32 is directly connected to the promise that Israel would have been waiting for. So it's kind of a legit question. Jesus is going to prove that it's short-sighted, but it's humanly speaking, a legitimate question. So Jesus ever teaching them and giving them hope through unexpected ways and in ways that probably don't sound like great answers at first, he's not diverting. He's, he's replacing the question with a better thought. He says to them, it's not for you to know the times or seasons that the Father is fixed by his own authority. It's not for you to know. Somebody's got that answer. It's the father. Jesus had said before, even the son doesn't know when the father will have the son return. So there are things that Jesus says, even I don't know those things, not because he's more ignorant or anything, but he's trusting. He's showing us through demonstration. You can trust the father's plan. And so there's a there's a an answer to their question a little bit uh, inadvertently, but it's it's definitely a more powerful answer to the question. It's going to be clear to us as we go through Acts that Jesus wants us focused on things that are before us, the more practical things that we can actually sink our teeth into, that we can actually touch and taste and smell, that we'll be focused on matters of discipling believers, that we'll be focused on matters of building the church of Jesus Christ, that we'll be focused on matters that spread the gospel to the four corners of the world, and that those things, when we get really preoccupied with those things, it takes away our endless speculations and all of our page flipping about, when did he say this was going to happen, and eh, he's not back yet, and I need him to come back, and I, you know, and and we get so wrapped around the axle about the things that aren't made clear to us in the scripture about timing. And where does that come from? Partly from intellectual curiosity. I don't want to fault us for wanting to know answers, but also from a great place of human insecurity. How long do I have to deal with this? How long could my life be going in this direction and it not be satisfying or fulfilling? When will my rescue come and get me up out of here? This is the way that we so often run to prophecies and end time speculations and things. And Jesus is answering for us in terms of proportion, how we should be viewing those things. I want to be a little bit careful as I talk about this, because there are things in scripture that we should know. And I will admit, I'll confess to you, I'm a little bit lazy when it comes to those things that I like that joke that I heard a long time ago that I'm a pan millennialist, which means it'll all pan out in the end. 
Um, I, I, I kind of have that. I feel like there are just so many more urgent things that I'm still trying to wrestle with, learn and practice that speculation about dates and what does Daniel mean by 70 weeks over here and what's happening in revelation over here and all of those things. But at the same time, I got to be careful because the Lord did record some of it for us to be aware of. And I don't know if that's because he wants us to know, Hey, I've got a plan. I'm just not going to tell you everything, but I want you to know, I got this figured out. Is there a, is that the reason why we have some of it? The problem is, is that, and I kind of recoil anytime the church says, not that it's, I've heard it from necessarily you people, but the church in broad always says, we need to study revelation. I know why you want to study revelation because it's cool. And it's an easy fixation, right? We kind of go, well, I'd love to know what this means. And what does that mean? Who's a horseman here? And what's a dragon this? And what's the time of all these sorts of things? We have to, we have to protect our speculation with trust that the Lord has a plan and we won't know all the details. And Jesus is saying it's not for us to know the times, which is a chronological thing or the seasons, which is just the areas of things. So I don't know. I'm not telling you what you should or shouldn't do with prophecies and end times, this and that, but I am warning you based on what Jesus is saying here that it will take our eyes off the ball if we just keep thinking about when's he coming? When's he coming? When's he coming? He's even going to deal with this through the angels here in our text. All right, we've got to keep moving. I'm still under time. I have confidence. Verse nine. And when he had said these things, as they were looking on, he was lifted up and a cloud took him out of their sight. Jesus is literally, figuratively, physically ascending to the throne. He is ascending to the right hand of his father. And out of all the things that we could see in this text, there's so many things we could just camp out in these first 11 verses. There's so many cool doctrinal things going on here, but the fact that he's proving his resurrection, the fact that he's commissioning the launch of witnesses, the fact that he's reminding them of kingdom focus and that he's unveiling a profound and, and perfect mission strategy, all of these things that he's accomplishing in these moments and in this text, one of the hugest aspects of all of this, and in fact, really like kind of the capstone, is the fact that he actually ascended to the throne. If Jesus doesn't go, the Holy Spirit doesn't come. Some of those implications might be obvious to us, but I'll try to spell out the obvious because it's like a spiritual gift of mine. There would be no Holy Spirit if Jesus didn't ascend. He, he told us in John 14, these things I've spoken to you while I'm still with you. He had already said, it's better that I go. So that the spirit will come, the comfort will come. Verse 26, he says, but the helper, the Holy Spirit, whom the father will send in my name, he'll teach you all things and bring to your remembrance all that I have said to you. He's saying there is more for you to learn. There's a way in which you're going to be reminded of the things that you've already learned because you will forget guilty. So he said, it's better for me. It's more effective and impactful if the spirit comes and does all that he can do, because even though he's Jesus, and I'm going to say this in human terms, I'm saying this very carefully. It's almost like he's saying, I'm still just one person. 
Like I said, I, I, I don't even like saying that out loud, but that's the emphasis he's trying to make is that the spirit can be everywhere present all the time. We see this playing out when Mary is um, uh, distraught and, and, and seeing that Jesus is, is dead and everything, but then she finds the empty tomb and then she sees him resurrected and she goes like this, oh, I missed you. And she's just clinging and wrapping herself. We study this in John 20 and she's just so enthusiastic to have him back. And what does he say? He says, let go already. He's not saying, don't touch me. You're not allowed to touch me. He says, you're clinging to me so tight as though it's better for you that I'm here physically before you. It's going to get better still. When I get up out of here, the Holy Spirit will come and you will have the presence of God in you and with you for all times. This is what Jesus is getting across when he says, don't cling to me. You're thinking that just because my physical presence is here, that all things are solved. He'd already proven that even with the death of her brother. So if, if Jesus doesn't go, the Holy Spirit doesn't come. If there's no ascending to the, the right hand of the father, then there's no promised authority over all of these things because it was all tied to that. That's why he answers the question, will you restore the kingdom by going, Yep, working on it. I'm out of here. I'm going to just borrow a little bit from Tim Keller on this because I think, you know, because he's Tim Keller, but he also, he just nailed it when it came to this, what is the impact of the ascension for us? And so I'm just going to boil his points down to a couple of statements here. There's the relational intimacy that he made available to us, like we just talked about with Mary at the tomb. Because he, that one individual that couldn't be or wasn't everywhere at all times, got up and and ascended. The Holy Spirit could be everywhere to be close to us. It established relational intimacy. It also reveals that the historic strategy, all the planning that God had done, was unfolding for our benefit, for our success. In Ephesians 1, this is going back to early in our study in Ephesians the, the, Paul was laying out all these great things and the reasons why God has given us all these things. In verse 9, he says, making known to us the mystery of his will, according to his purpose, which he set forth in Christ, as a plan for the fullness of time, to unite all things in him, things in heaven and things on earth, that, that, that all of these events, all of the, the bending of history was for the success of God's people. Romans 8:28 we know that all things work together for good to those who love God. So this is all happening as a result of the impact of the ascension. And then the last thing that Keller points out here for us to think about is that there's a there's an advocacy that we get a transforming advocacy and he points out that the historical mind the ancient mind didn't have the separation of powers that we have in the United States and other democratic governments where it's like we got judicial branch over here, we've got executive branch over here and that sort of thing. Those things, that power and that justice came together in the throne of a kingdom. And so now Jesus is established. He's, he's sitting at the right hand of God the Father and he's in full authority, but he's also in full advocacy mode taking, uh, uh, taking um, our lumps taking our accusations from the enemy and defending us before him saying they are no longer guilty because I took their guilt. They're no longer punishable because I've taken their punishment. If Jesus doesn't ascend, these things are not secure. These things don't take place. Hebrews 7 says that he's able to save to the uttermost those who draw near to God through him since he always lives to make intercession for us. 
That's his mode and his model. That's his mission now is that he is always, and I'm giving him plenty of legal material. It seems as though I'm, I'm sure the enemy has tons of accusations that could be fired towards Brent Small. So even just if you were talking about how do you keep your lawyer busy, I mean, I'm sure I'm keeping my lawyer Jesus quite busy at the throne. It says he's always willing and available to make intercession for me. And also, I want us to see in this rest of the next few verses here that God's plan is the plan that is right in front of us. Jesus is going to commission witnesses in verse 8. He says, you will be my witnesses. Remember we said, I think it was last week, we said that it's such a statement of expectation. Not, eh, we'll see if you pan out. We'll see if you make it in this whole witness. No, no, no. You will be my witnesses. You will be my witnesses in Jerusalem, in all Judea and Samaria, and to the end of the earth. Not only is that setting a high expectation that this thing's going to work, but it's also very freaky for the apostle and the disciple to hear at the time because these cities, even though they're removed from us, they have great uh, impact to their ears. Because they're sitting, they're saying, okay, so you want us to be witness in the city that just killed our Savior? You want us to be a witness in the area of the region that has always chased, that has already chased us out. And still we've got this whole kind of racial social bias against the Samaritans. You want us to go back to them? We haven't gotten over that yet. We haven't quite grown in our faith to be okay with Samaritans. And you're telling us that's where we're going to be witnesses. And, and are you saying that this will actually be so effective that it will spread to the four corners, whatever they knew to be the four corners of the world at the time? It's scary stuff. It's a lofty expectation. This isn't just a good strategy. It's not just encouragement that this thing will work. There's scary orders to fulfill. So the next time that guy is out there going, I'm an apostle of Jesus because I had a visit from the spirit in the middle of the night. We're going to build an $80 million building and all this kind of stuff. Say, hey, what scary territory has God called you into? It's, it, it's part and parcel. The word witness means martyr. They knew what they were hearing. They were like, this ain't going to be easy, is it? You want us to intentionally go get our teeth kicked in because it's going to spread the gospel? He goes, yep. God seems to call us to tasks that we feel the least equipped for, or he calls us sometimes to people that we have the least love for or understanding for, simply just to prove he's pretty strong. To prove, I got this, I can handle this. It's not because he's going to pump you up and say, you're ready and you're good enough and I believe in you. He's like, no, 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 this is going to hurt. You're going to fail. You're not going to be any good at this. But the better, the more faithful you are at it, the more they'll see, wow, God's really on the move. He's really up to something. It's his might, it's his strength, it's his glory that is seen. I came across a quote this week that says, the light that shines the farthest shines brightest at home. And I just love the order of things that the mission is going out. Jerusalem, then Judea, Samaria, uttermost parts of the earth. In fact, this is how we're going to see the Acts plays out. We're starting off with our series called, this is how you set the city on fire. Eventually it's going to be, how do you set the country on fire? How do you set the world on fire? That's how we're going to see Acts play out. So Jesus is sending them into the world. And that's not just the outer reaches. He's saying, think back to where you belong. This is what happens in verse 10 and 11. 
And while they were gazing into heaven as he went, behold, two men stood by them in white robes. Anytime you see the angels appear, we have to go, okay, there's something very, very important is about to be uh, said, and the way in which it's said is going to be very important. Angels don't just show up randomly to prove they exist and there's a spirit world. God sends his heralders, his, his messengers, for a specific reason, to say very specific things, either to announce that something's happening or to explain what you just witnessed as we're seeing here. So these guys were in white robes, and I'm picturing them standing, gazing, and just looking, going, when did you get here, you know? Like they didn't already see enough freaky things, and then we typically see that the presence of angels is a very, uh, you know, unsettling event and terrifying event. What does the angel say to them? The angels say to them, men of Galilee, why do you stand looking into heaven? This Jesus who was taken up from you into heaven will come in the same way as you saw him go into heaven. I'm emphasizing this phrase into heaven because the angels said it four times in two sentences. What point are they trying to make? Why are you looking into heaven? Jesus was taken up into heaven. Has it come the same way as you saw him go into heaven? Even the text says in verse 10, that was the fourth one. I'm sorry, I missed. They were gazing into heaven. Luke wants us to see that the, that the angels were announcing what you just saw was something different. Jesus was coming in and out over 40 days. And now they're saying what you just saw was a little bit more, I'll use the word permanent for now. If you can use that phrase. Don't expect him to keep popping in and out. These 40 days have concluded. You just saw him leave and go into heaven. He is there. He is gone. Again, gives me more strength from my doubt that everyone sees Jesus now. I mean, now as in our day. The the angels are saying, you just witnessed a radical shift. He is now left. He has departed. Do you notice... I I don't know, I asked this question as I was looking at the text, and I was like, why did they say men of Galilee? I couldn't find anybody to comment on. It was almost like all the brilliant commentators missed it. So I get, I think, I think I got a book I can write now, finally. But I don't have an answer. That's a problem. You can't just write a book on speculation. Well, I guess everybody does, but I shouldn't. I think, 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 that the angels are saying men of Galilee... Uh, guys, you know, uh, wherever your town you live in, uh, hey, listen, those of you that live in Fairfield, well, Waterville, Albion, wherever you're from, it's like a smack back to reality. Oh, that's right. I have a home and some responsibilities back there because I'm standing there just going, what did I just witness? Where did he go? What do I do now? Whenever we see something we can't comprehend or, or we're saying goodbye to the one we, we don't, we're lost. We don't know what to do. And he's like, Hey, you have a home. You have a world right here around you. Men of Galilee snap back to reality. Ooh, that could be a notebook. I'm going to wrap instead. <laughs> Gavin, you help me lay down a sick beat and we'll put a track together. Okay. I don't know. It's just something the kid said 20 years ago. I don't know how to. Men of Galilee, this Jesus He went away physically, unmistakably. He will come back the same way. In other words, don't worry about missing it. He will be back. You won't miss it. But ironically, you won't miss it. You'll be looking for it by looking all around you and being busy in the world that's around you and the tasks that are set before you, not by doing this. The more I believe the, the angels are saying, the more you do this, the more apt you are to miss his return. 
men of Galilee, get back to the task. Your task is in front of you. It's not above you. It's not beneath you. We wait for his return by waiting on him. There's that wait again. Jesus said, wait, don't leave Jerusalem. It's going to happen right here. He's saying to us, wait, don't panic, don't freak out, don't long for a place that you haven't been yet so, so, that it, so much that it distracts you from the mission I've given you to do. So the questions for us are, are we desiring to be an active part of God's unfolding plan? Are we looking at it saying, oh, like with fresh eyes and fresh hearts, fresh ears, Lord, what? What is my Jerusalem? What is the Judea, Samaria, and the uttermost parts of the world that you've put me in? position to impact am i eager to submit to the lord's mission under the lord's authority am i really willing to do it his way or do i have it all figured out and i know my comfort zone my strengths i know what lane i'm going to stay in or am i open to the fact that he might come at this in a different way in a way that i don't expect the one i don't think i'm resourced for and yet he's going to prove himself bigger all along the way and then lastly, are you ready to see the Holy Spirit move in your midst? Are you ready to see the Lord do only what he can do? Pastor Gary referenced earlier that we've been praying at 320 based on Ephesians 320, which says that you ask the Lord for more than you could ever ask or think, that he's capable of doing more than we could ever ask or think. So as we pray, do we pray, Lord, I'm not saying that you got to do my thing. I'm not saying that you got to do exactly what I'm demanding. If I just believe and sweat it out and I just really feel like you're in it with me, that you're going to do it. But I want to believe in the things that you want to do. And I want to be in a position to be ready to move and take part in it. Those are the things I believe you can do beyond my wildest imagination. This is the season that I believe awaits us as we study this incredible book together. And I'm praying that you read ahead. I pray that you spend some time dwelling on some of these principles and just asking the Lord, use some of the notes and the questions that I've put together in there as a way to prompt some of your thoughts and your prayers. And uh, let's go through this season together, fully expecting but not knowing, which is always a lot of fun, right? That's why we need each other, because it's freaky. All right. No sermon's ever been closed with that phrase before. It's not fun, but it's freaky. Let's stand and let's pray together. Dear Lord Jesus, it is always just a blessing and a privilege to be able to open your word and to see what you have for us. And Lord, it's a scary thing that you use human instruments to um, review and study and interpret and all those things. So Lord, I know that that my humanity and anybody else's that does this can easily get in the way. So I pray, God, that you would, through the power of your spirit and through the interpretation and the clarity and the clarification of your spirit, bring this message to the hearts and lives of your people and encourage them with it, challenge them with it, change and transform all of us with it. Lord, help us to step into a new season of of expectation, not of expectation that you're going to do everything that we believe you should do, but that you are still capable of doing all that you want to do. And that for some gracious reason, you use us in the process. Lord, also help us to understand that the difficulties and the problems that we deal with are so often remedied or comforted by being engaged in the, in the eternal. That you somehow you fix or you salve our daily 
issues and challenges and pains and aches by being pleasantly and appropriately distracted with your mission. So I pray, Lord, that we would trust you in that as well. Thank you, Lord, for moving in these people, being so gracious to us. It's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen.